This week on the Parlay in All Blue, we have Heather Infantry. First, we want to point you to her Twitter bio, which says, Foot Soldier for Black Liberation. We're going to come back to that. She's the Managing Director for Transformation Alliance, and it's about creating thriving communities, thriving mixed income communities, that's important, and have a high quality of life, but linking it all to transportation. If anything, we have to understand is, is that housing and living a high quality life is also linked to being able to move, being able to walk, being able to get to and fro, public transportation and all of those things. Movement is a part of liberation. Heather will amplify a lot of that over the uh, over the course of this interview. Again, for me, like I always say, if black lives are gonna matter, all aspects of black life have to matter and transportation is a big portion of that. Heather's also originally from Toronto, Canada and she comes to this work first via stop in the world of the arts. That's really important. And what I take from that, get in where you fit in. It doesn't matter where you start. It's what you see and what you do and bringing humanity to the hard work of infrastructure and transportation and public service is so critical. This room at the table for black liberation and this room for foot soldiers <laughs> in the army of black liberation for everybody. Use your talent where you can. Next up on the Parlay in All Blue is Heather Infantry. Thank you for joining us. Heather Infantry, welcome to the Parlay in All Blue. How are you? I'm great. Good to see you, Mark. Thanks for having me on. Well, no, thank you for taking the time to be with us. And we are looking forward to having a conversation about transportation and infrastructure and where we get it right, where we get it wrong, and what can we do better. And, uh, you know, a lot of our focus at the Parlay in All Blue is about equity and marginalized communities and all of those things. So I'll, I'll start there with just what does transportation have to do with equity? Yeah, that's a great first question. And I want to just make sure I offer a disclaimer and say that I'm in no stretch of the imagination, a transit expert. I'm very much a lay person in this field, but as someone who has lived in Atlanta now for 20 plus years and come to this space with an arts and culture background and someone who is raising a family and trying to live the best life possible that I can live while also contributing to my community, I have become increasingly more aware of these various social issues that impact folks that look like me in Black communities, immigrants, and other, and other groups that are really struggling with how to support and find their own sort of prosperity in this Atlanta dream. And so... In my work as of lately, I have been working in the transportation space, specifically around what we call transit-oriented developments. So in Atlanta specifically, transit-oriented development, also TODs, is the development of underutilized real estate. And in the case of MARTA, our transit system, it's the real estate that surrounds the rail stations. And in some neighborhoods across the city, there's acreage that literally has been dedicated for parking that isn't being used, that are in prime locations that are poised 
to support density in communities, offer amenities where there previously haven't been any. And it creates a wonderful revenue stream for a transit system that doesn't always have the kind of resources that it needs. So when we talk about how transportation relates to equity in any urban center that you find across this country, the users of said transit systems are oftentimes people of lower incomes, right? It is their sole means of getting to jobs, getting kids to school, accessing food, accessing recreation. And when we don't have a transit system that is comprehensive and provides access to every facet of the city, then the person's opportunity to build wealth for themselves, right, in terms of getting access to their jobs or being um, in proximity to schools that are the best performing for the students, they have limited opportunities in trying to live out their best lives. And so in Atlanta specifically, we know historically that when MARTA was created in the 70s under, I guess that was under Maynard Jackson, Atlanta was leading the way with the number of miles track that it had. But unfortunately, the power brokers that be at the time were not in favor of expanding MARTA beyond the urban corridor, specifically going out to regions like Clayton or Cobb County. There was a lot of pushback, largely from a bias that poor people that are on transit are going to come into their neighborhoods and steal things from them. And so because of that, the expansion of our transit system at a critical time at at its inception and forecasted development was really amputated and cut short. And so we lag behind a lot of other urban centers with regards to a fully comprehensive transit system. And as a result of that, as a result of racist policies, we now hold, you know, first and second place for having the worst traffic congestion in the country. We literally sit in traffic and spend these long commutes trying to get to our places of employment, getting to things of enjoyment because someone didn't believe that there were certain members of this community that should have full access to all areas of our of our region. And so that's a, a real way in which equity plays a big part in transportation. Yeah, you know, so because you talked about sitting in traffic, you know, I'm going to park there for a minute, literally, because I'm triggered, but because there's a couple of things with that. Listen, if you if you live here, but listen, this is the same in Chicago and Los Angeles and a lot of other places. Atlanta has is it is has it in the extreme as well. But you know, to me, when I hear you know we need to do something about climate change, right, and we need healthier families and all of those things, that sitting in traffic like that is the antithesis of caring about the environment. So we're talking about you know, the number of things, and I'll go back through through some of them, there's so much that can, that traffic and transportation and the infrastructure that we have contributes to in a negative way in, in this environment because we don't have, you know, a robust public transportation system. So you mentioned that, I want to talk a little bit about MARTA. So MARTA at its inception, and for those listening who are not from here, MARTA is our public transportation system and it's heavy rail, but it's limited in terms of where it stops in terms of Heather 
as Heather mentioned, but also a limited amount of buses or what have you. And it is an ongoing legacy of segregation and, you know, things that the country was trying to correct post-civil rights, but we're still kind of dealing with that. What's the thinking, the latest thinking about sort of MARTA and public transportation and rail now? Well, as more Fortune 500 companies are coming back into the city and establishing their headquarters to respond to a workforce that is interested in more walkability, looking for transit alternatives. They don't want to sit in their car. They want to be able to walk to work, bike to work, get on Uber, take a train, take a bus, right? So now there's a renewed interest in transportation and there are federal dollars that are now coming down the pike to help build out these programs. But yet and still, we need public will in order to pass the kind of legislation for the expansion efforts that need to happen and the capital that needs to go along to support that to happen, right? And so we're still contending with this issue of how do we expand on this critical infrastructure piece that we still think about only being beneficial to poor people, or we have these these notions in mind of poor communities coming in and ravishing other neighborhoods, right? Like we're still having to contend with that even as we begin to understand the environmental impact of being in traffic and what that is doing to asthma rates and that sort of thing. I mean, it's interesting, a lot of the data that came down during the pandemic in terms of um, health benefits of people not being in their cars all the time. Yep. And with the infrastructure bill that's coming through the federal government right now, transit folks are looking at highway systems and some of the racist practices that came about through highway systems that were a result of urban renewal that literally decimated black communities, right? Yep. And we experienced that in Atlanta with I-20 and parts of 75, 85 going through People's Town and that sort of thing. So while I think there is awareness and a certain level of, of wokeness, we still aren't necessarily realizing that awareness in how we're voting around these issues and being more inclusive of those folks that we have left behind for generations, right? That's the piece that still needs to be reconciled and contended with. Yeah. And when you talk about urban renewal, I think it's really important for people to even understand the timeline of development. That happens in the 1950s in the Eisenhower administration. So that urban renewal and the design of the modern highway system that we have and the dividing of Black neighborhoods in Chicago, in Ferguson, Missouri, in Atlanta, in New Orleans, in in the Bronx, and in Brooklyn, and, and then all over, in Buffalo. There's no place in, in Baltimore. It, it, it's literally touched every place. That was developed and designed at a time when we didn't have the Voting Rights Act. So it was developed when, when we didn't even have input, full input from Black people, immigrants, and Latinos and the like. I mean, so it's an area where we really need to refocus. I want to go back to the top, though, of what you were talking about, because I haven't heard that term before, transit-oriented development and the space around it. And you mentioned, just can you give us a little more detail around that? I'm, I'm very interested in that. 
Yeah, transit in transit oriented development, TODs is a concept that's happening across the country. And in Atlanta, some of the best examples of um, TODs might be Lindbergh Center Station, where you have the rail station that is surrounded by mixed use development. So combination of housing, ground floor retail, such as restaurants, cafes, and that sort of thing. And one, it's a revenue stream, right, for the transit system. But two, it's a way to create some density, particularly in a region like Atlanta that's growing at this exponential rate. And we are forecasting this housing shortage because we've been so accustomed to our suburban sprawl and we think that this space is a good thing. And we love our cars and we have dedicated so much highway and so much parking that we don't understand that we're in this critical rut of not having enough housing to accommodate, right? Just housing period, not even just affordable housing, but housing inventory period. And so this is in some ways a way to solve for that. And another way in which we can get people out of their cars, because if people can live in corridors and centers where everything that they need for their everyday existence is within a short walk or within reach of where they live, then they may decide, hey, I can give up my car, right? I might be more interested in using public transit as my first option to move around a place. Yeah. So that's that's some of the, the, the interest and popularity of TODs. Thank you for that. So in, in how does, from your experience, transportation and a robust transportation network or, or system or planning factor into employment and employment opportunities? Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, it's all about access, right? It's all about an affordable, efficient way in order for folks to access jobs And if you can't get to a job, then it's not likely that you can have that job. I mean, I think a lot about my own experience growing up in Toronto, Canada. I grew up in Toronto, Canada, where our transit system is called TTC. And as a high schooler, I lived short walking distance to the high school that I attended. But after school, we all got on the streetcar. We all got on the train. We all got on buses to go to other schools, right, for games and that sort of thing. But more importantly, for less than $30 a month, I had full access to my city. I could go as far east as Scarborough, which was probably about a 45 to 60 minute drive outside of Toronto and go as far west. I mean, rapid, we had rapid bus systems even back then, right? And I completely took for granted the confidence that that instilled in me as a youngster and giving me that kind of access. Here I am now in Atlanta where that is not the case, raising two girls who are so dependent upon their parents to move around town. There's no there's no room for spontaneity. There's no place for them to discover things and to journey on their own. If they get into Uber, that's really that's a really exorbitant expense, right? And I'm also having to entrust people to drive my kids around, which can be really nerve-wracking. So it all comes down to access. You know, transit equals access. And when you have access, the world opens up for you in terms of what you're able to do and the confidence that it gives you in being able to do those things. Yeah, no, I listen, movement is is so important. And if you look at the history of marginalized communities uh, or in this is anywhere, 
I remember going to my family and I went to South Africa and one of the, the ways to enforce apartheid is you just can't go in certain places. It, it's just you just don't have the access to get to certain places. I mean, the there's transportation to pull black people to the mines or to places of industrial where the labor was needed. But in terms of access to the city for worship, which I could do in Chicago. And so what a lot of what you're describing in Toronto, I had that in Chicago as well. You could get to places of worship, you could get to school, you could get to a museum, you could get to a festival and not, I mean, I could walk to a bus and there would be several of them, right, that I could get to and, and get on a train and back or what have you. You mentioned, and I don't know if you if you all uh, in your work have, have heard in, or have gotten any feedback on this. So we're in the middle of a pandemic and people either needing to be tested or just go to get health care, what have you. What have we done for people? Because so much of that of what we call the essential workers, you also have family, multi-generational family members and people getting to the doctor. How has transportation enabled or disabled sort of our meeting those needs, if at all? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And one that I don't know the specifics of efforts. I know Uber and Lyft have done various things around supporting the vaccination campaigns and that sort of thing. I know MARTA was very intentional about not discontinuing any service whatsoever during the height of the pandemic. So making sure that frontline workers were always able to access transit how they had been accustomed to. So without any interruption, but I don't, I'm not sure beyond that, but those are, you know, really important considerations in a, in a crisis moment like this. Yeah, no, I, I thought about that, the vaccinations in particular, you know, the counties, various counties here, or, you know, local municipalities say, hey, you know, come and get vaccinated. But so much of those were done in parking lots and people like staying in their car. Like my wife and I got our first round of vaccination. We went to the Delta parking lot here, fine, in the car, there were two nurses, one went on one side and, and hit one and the other one on the other side. I mean, it's very efficient if you're in a car, but if you were in a bus or, or, or train, you know, no go. So it, we, we've got to really think about, we have opportunities here. Something that you said to me off camera in a previous conversation, and you talked about transportation not just being sort of trains, and you touched on it here about sidewalks and biking and other things. What is tra- when we think about transportation? What are we talking about? And I know that maybe sound maybe that sounds obvious, but just expand what transportation means, or or more so like when we think about infrastructure, right? Like what are all of the components that go into it, and. You know, I've had the the good fortune in recent years to work alongside Ryan Gravel, who is the brainchild behind the Atlanta Beltline, which is a 22-mile loop that surrounds all of the neighborhoods of Atlanta and provides this connectivity and is essentially a transit corridor for that express purpose of giving access to folks that otherwise didn't have access to different parts of our region without having to ever cross the street. And, um, you know, one of the things that I, I learned from him, he's like, when you look around a community, right, when you look at a neighborhood, when you look at a corridor of any kind, what you're looking at are a series of decisions 
that were informed and instructed by the value system of the people that are behind those designs, right? And what they value and who they value, right? So when you walk into a community that is lacking speed bumps or has broken lighting or there is there are no sidewalks, right? And you look at the faces of the people in those communities, there's some value judgment that's being made there. And the same is true when you can walk into a community and there are flower beds that mark the, you know, the clearly paved sidewalks and the tree canopy that is that is enjoyed in those regions and the, and the functioning traffic lights and that sort of thing. Those things speak to the values that they have and the decisions that have been made for those folks that they deem as priority, right? So infrastructure, which I'm only now beginning to realize, you know, as an adult, 46 years old, and I never really thought about these things. I never thought about how much a community is designed, how that can reinforce my identity and my sense of self-worth in a positive way or in a negative way, right? The seed is planted in the design of our communities as to whether I'm going to be somebody or not. Yeah. And for those who have to transcend that, if we live in communities where we're not being reinforced with that kind of positive messaging, that's a hard way to be. It's a really hard and unfair way to be. No, it really is. And so some of this I'm just aware of, I mean, painfully just aware of it in my fifties. So let me, let me say that just first off. And I would, I badger my kids sometimes and just driving through a walk and through and say, why do you think a bike lane is here? Why isn't one there? Whatever. They're probably like, oh God, just can we go to where we're going? We don't need a civics lesson. But, you know, what I would tell them is, is that, you know, in areas where you see, you know, bike lanes and they're not just bike lanes, like with the, like a, a white line going there, but they're bright green. Right. And then you have these speed humps and they're colorful or what have you. And you see people, children walking to and from school. Those are communities that, to your point, and this, I'm going to use your word, that is is making a value statement about how they want people to live and what they, the access that they want people to have and the health that they want people to have. And so I think that if there's nothing else, we have a big opportunity to, through our infrastructure choices, make it so that we're valuing everyone. Let me ask you, but, but so you, you touched on this at the beginning. You said you're a lay person in this, in this field. You're a very knowledgeable lay person. So, you know, the little humbleness there, but you clearly know a lot. What's your journey to this work in this space? It's really interesting because I come to this work through theater, through arts and culture. I was a theater major in college. That's what I got my undergraduate degree in, did a little bit of performance and work in that space upon graduating, but then quickly found that my niche was in arts administration and more specifically fundraising for arts organizations. And through that, I eventually found myself working more directly with health and human service organizations, one in particular, Emmaus House here in Atlanta, which is an agency that provides short-term assistance for folks living on the edge of poverty and being confronted with all of the issues that go around that, right? You know, how does poverty come about? And what are the ways in which we can tackle that? And what you discover, it's it's a very complex, it's a very complex situation that, you know, comes from 
a legacy of policies and decisions that have been made for generations that have created these kinds of circumstances. Fast forward, um, I found myself back in 2012 working with youth development program here in Atlanta, using dance as a as a medium to impart soft skills in, in young people ages three through 18. And in doing that work as a fundraiser, we started a capital campaign to support the building of a new facility. And it just so happened that our new facility was going to be part of a TOD in the Edgewood neighborhood on the east-west line of MARTA. And so that's where a lot of my exposure to things like new market tax credits and everything that goes into understanding all of that and and understanding the disinvestment that's happened in communities that has prompted these kinds of tax credits to come along. But in many ways, these have become engines for gentrification. So at the start of that building project, we were going into a community that had upwards of 40% concentrated poverty, which is why it was poised for these tax incentives. And by the time it broke ground, that development was now across the street from half a million dollar homes. So over the course of five years, we saw this dramatic shift. But it was in doing that work that I, you know, really began to understand the history of MARTA, understanding this concept of transit-oriented development, how transit is essential to creating access for marginalized communities throughout our region, Also understanding how even in these efforts of redevelopment in communities that have been left behind, that there's still a lot of work that we have to do to mitigate gentrification so that we're not just displacing these communities where these real estate opportunities exist. And that's an even harder, even more complex issue to attack and chip away at. It requires everybody being on the same page and everybody having a shared vision on the importance of these communities and understanding, most importantly, that where a lot of Black folks in this city who are on the fringes of poverty, understanding that this is not, this is not a result of incompetence, right? That this is actual policy written into law authored by policymakers and lawmakers that over generations have produced this result where people find themselves not able to mitigate the circumstances of just poverty, right? They're, they're just literally stuck. And in Atlanta, where we have a statistic where if you're born in poverty, you only have a 4% chance of ever breaking that cycle, which is saying if you're born poor, In Atlanta, you're going to die poor. And it's Black folks, you know, being this concentrated Black city, which for whom that is that is the dire statistic. And in my work, that's, you know, a challenge, a day to day challenge in this context of Black Lives Matter and all of our this new interest in 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 the social movement of racial reconciliation, all that kind of good stuff. Like, that's the thing that matters most. This is a life or death situation. And, and, and I get frustrated because we dance around it. You know, we, we tell people, be patient. It takes time. Yep. But there are lives on the line. And, and the pandemic made that stark and clear to all of us that this is a very critical crisis issue in our country right now. Has been. 
Yeah, no, it, it has been. And, and you articulated that really well, because what I tell people and so much a, a big part of what the focus of our show is about is that, yes, there are all not always. I hope not always. There will be people that will use racial slurs or do symbols like hanging nooses or what have you. And all of that is reprehensible and it's disgusting. But that sort of individuals doing bad things. These things that we're talking about about are systemic because Atlanta. Well, listen, we've we've got a big Microsoft is coming here. Yay, yay, yay! Because those are jobs. Happy about that. Coca Cola's here. Home Depot. I mean, we've got a, a whole lot coming here, and it is a city where you will see a lot of black folks thriving. But at the same time, I really, really need people to understand that. Atlanta is also number one in income inequality, and you can you can just about follow the MARTA bus route or train route and get you can experience all of that inequality. And I wasn't aware of that stat of of, of just the stark chances of if you're born in poverty of what it would take to get out of it. So appreciate that. You know, something that you, you said that that piqued my interest and in in that thought about it, with gentrification, so many people are being pushed out of the cities, right? Or urban centers where those amenities are being built or what have you and into the suburbs. Suburbs were notoriously bad about not having that transportation. So we're, we're actually going to have this even worse now with uh, gentrification. Are, are people really thinking about that with the, 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 the changes in population and where people live? Yeah, I think that's scary reality that we're facing, the suburbanization of uh, poverty, because the difference about yeah. the urbanization of poverty is that in cities, that's where your commerce and industries often happen. So even though people fled to the suburbs to live, they oftentimes commuted into the city to work. And so poverty was visible. It was visible. You saw it every day, right? And in seeing it every day, you were you were forced to deal with it. Also because of the crime that happens with it. So you're forced as an elected official, as a as a as a corporate leader, you were forced to address this issue in some kind of way because of the visibility of it. Now, as we begin to move people out into the suburbs where we don't see them as much, I don't know the prospect of that future, what that looks like, but my imagination takes me to really dark, scary places. Now, listen, and I am someone who tries to be aware of these things, but until you, until this conversation, I hadn't really thought about that effect of gentrification and pushing the poverty out, but also really now the if there was bad access before, there's almost nil access if you don't have a car moving forward. And the kind of desperation that then sets in with that oh, level yeah. of invisibility, right? Yeah. Now, listen, poverty is, is is much different than just being poor. Poverty is like, you know, not it's putting you in that mental state of desperation. It's a much different thing than not, you know, not having a lot of money. Poverty is a whole different thing. With the infrastructure bill, and I don't know if we are what we're doing here locally, but it appears across the country or certainly the Washington Post had an article and it was talking about electric vehicle charging. And so I think, you know, where everybody's saying, you know, we all have electric cars. That's great. 
and it would reduce the carbon footprint, et cetera, et cetera. But there's this gap sort of in where the EV stations and the plugins for the cars are going. Are we thinking about that locally or has there been much talk about that? Because it, it there was an article, it's in the Washington Post for anybody who's listening, and it, it focused on Chicago. And so, of course, then I'm I'm reading it. But as the EV build out is happening, black communities are being left out. And while right now an EV car may be a luxury or, you know, um, a one off or what have you. But if that we're moving forward. Right. And that becomes the norm. We've got to think about where we put these types of infrastructure. Are you aware of any planning that is happening in that space and and making it equitable? Well, I don't know the specifics of what's happening in the electric car space, but there is an Atlanta based organization called EV Hybrid Noir, which is really about bringing this technology to Black communities, it's it's national in scope in terms of its awareness campaigns that they're doing and really advocating strongly that the EV hybrid technology and infrastructure is being placed in these communities and that folks in lower income neighborhoods are, are having access to this, right? So I know there's been a tre- tremendous amount of effort. I was just, um, before we broke for the new year, I attended a conference about pod cars that was hosted in Clayton County because Clayton County just got MARTA bus service about two years ago. So they're a community, they're a county south of the city of which the Atlanta airport is partially located in. But because of the lack of transit access, residents in this community literally could not access the jobs that were at the airport that is located in their county. Yes, and so they've been, they've been doing a lot of work to advocate. And so they've gotten, they've gotten bus service into Clayton County, but now they're looking at things like autonomous vehicles, which they, there's a version of this that they call pod cars. So there's a real interest in leadership to begin expanding some of this newer technology in these different parts of the region that will have measurable impact on these communities. And there's some mixed use development that's happening relative to the airport that includes things like housing and housing affordability and other retail commerce opportunities for entrepreneurs in this region of the of, of Atlanta that's that's been sort of forgotten and left behind and predominantly black. And it, it just remains to be seen how much we can preserve that for folks that oftentimes don't get first access to these things. Or are we doomed to repeat like what we've always done when it comes to these kinds of things, right? It's, it's, it's really difficult, right? I have a colleague that works in South Atlanta, focused community strategies, and they, they do housing affordability work. And I remember they were doing a build in this community and a colleague was sharing with me that they, they got a sign that was parked on their lawn that said something like, you know, we don't want these new houses here, really because they were afraid of gentrification, right? And so, you know, they'd sprawled some signs on there, not knowing that this builder has an eye towards affordability, but it just speaks to the anxiousness that we feel in communities when we see nice things happening, right? So this notion that when something nice is coming to a neighborhood, it's the first sign that it's not for you and that plans are being made for you to be displaced. Yep. It's a, That's an important revelation, but it's true. 
it happens. The minute we start seeing the parks or we see bike lanes or we see a brewery of any kind, it's like, uh oh, time to pack your bag, time to pack your bags or a charter school. Right. You know, these are the markers of time to time for the black folks to go. Yeah, yeah. Now that's the the the, the gentrification kit is the microbrewery brewery, <laughs> uh, a dog grooming place, and uh, just probably some type of you know specialty tea kind of hangout or what have you, and you you know it's coming there. And but you know you really talk at the the signals that are sent, but like you said, decisions made in the city or not made, and when things come, and and all of those things factor in. How does policing play into mobility, if at all, in, in terms of transportation? Yeah, but policing is also is, is also an issue. So when we are trying to figure out alternate solutions for getting people around cities, right? We're often talking about adding bike lanes and ride shares and that sort of thing. We're talking about with scooters, you're talking about scooters, yeah. and that's and that's all well and good, but we also have to understand what are the implications for certain types of users. I remember vividly serving on the board of the Old Fourth Ward Business Association at one time, and we were talking about these alternate mo- mobility devices and platforms that were available to us and wanting to promote. And while we were having this conversation, a colleague of mine who's an artist who likes to document different things in Atlanta had posted a video of, a, of two black men, two black men within the span of 20 minutes, both being apprehended by police while on their bicycle. And they were being apprehended because these gentlemen were riding their bikes on the sidewalk, which apparently you're not allowed to do, but everybody rides their bike on the sidewalk. Yeah. And yeah, the second, exactly. and yeah. the Second, and the second black gentleman that was stopped had some sort of warrant and at the conclusion of his time with the police officer ended up in the back of the police car, right? So being black in whatever device you're in, be it a car, on the train, on a bicycle, like these are still issues that we'll have to contend with. These are still issues that we have to give consideration to. So when we're designing communities, it's always good practice to sort of base it, I think, in a place like Atlanta, to, to base it on your Black residents, because then you're going to have to take into consideration a whole host of things that you wouldn't otherwise take consideration of when dealing with other communities. We have to think about policing and racial profiling that comes with policing and the way that Black communities are over-policed in a lot of ways yep. when we're trying to solve for these things. So it's they're they're complex and like we said earlier, these are the results of systemic issues of which no part of our city, no institution is exempt or absolved of, right? In some way or another, no. it has been touched by this legacy of racial segregation and indifference towards black folks. Yeah, yeah. Listen, and and this is for a whole separate episode. This is why the this fight against CRT is such madness. If we actually want to get past any of this, we have to understand the history around it, around segregation, around imaging, and how that leads to over-policing and the policy choices that we make. Because what ends up happening, yeah, you got the bike lanes, but in a place like Chicago, you're also getting, Black folks are getting more tickets for bike riding on the, in the wrong area. 
I encourage people on a separate episode to Google Walking While Black Jacksonville. ProPublica had an, a long article about that and that, that type of harassment of people really, it leads to a sense of hopeless, hopelessness because I'm not, so when I was driving, cops pulling me over for things like, you know, Sandra Bland, rest in peace, failure to signal. You know, minor traffic things or, or or traffic stops that just like, where's this coming from? Ferguson was a big example of that. But now I'm riding a bike and I'm getting ticketed more and, and walking and what have you. There, listen, for people, anybody that's listening, racism is not a feel good issue. It is a life or death. Racism can kill you. Racism kills. It's not just, or and it's certainly, if it doesn't kill you, it can certainly limit and dampen your life. And it's not as matter, it's not always a matter of just being twice as good or, you know, really getting a good education and all of those things, which are important, I guess, but it's other things as well. Listen, I could talk about this all day, but I do want to ask it just for, for people you know a lot about this space, and so, or, or certainly what's happening here in Atlanta. If I wanted to become more involved in sort of helping to plan and, and influence policy, and what can I as a citizen do to, to jump into some of this work? Yeah, that's a great question. So, the work that I'm involved with is a group called the Transformation Alliance. So, we're actually a coalition of organizations working at the intersection of, of a multitude of issue areas health, climate, housing, workforce, and all of that as a way to address transit oriented development as a, as a pathway for prosperity for Black folks and Black communities. And we're housed at the Atlanta Regional Commission, which is Atlanta's planning commission. They deal with all matters related to thriving communities, transit, workforce, aging, arts and culture. And they have a number of committees. If you go on the Atlanta Regional Commission website, there are a number of committees and posts, openings for everyday folks to get involved and to learn more about these issues so that they can better advocate and support our elected officials in making the best decisions possible for our communities. They can't do it alone. They need us as residents and citizens of this place to really work with them. And the best way that we can work with them is being knowledgeable about these issues and helping to fight where we can, where we can fight and be, and be strong advocates for yeah, listen, the more of these shows that I do, the one thing that, listen, voting is so important and, you know, those national sort of policies or what have you. But, man, local is where the game is because local is where your infrastructure dollars get implemented. Local is where, like you said, there are decisions being made about do we put an exit here? Do we put a stop sign, stop light? Do we, where do we, I mean, that is where the game actually has. So actually it's not, it's not a one or the other. It is both. You got to be voting and active on both the national level, but definitely at your local level, not just voting, but get involved. One question I want to ask, what cities or countries, and it could be anywhere here in the United States or anywhere that do this well or are planning to do it well. Who's who's really impressive in this area? I mean, I'm a bit biased. Yeah. But I was really impressed with Toronto 
I went back home in August. My my daughter's actually attending university there. So I went back home to get her settled. And it was my longest stint back home since I left the city in 95 when I was 19. And I'm coming back to the city with these fresh eyes now with, with this background and understanding and seeing the city from an infrastructure standpoint. And so one of the things that impressed me incredibly was their bike lanes. So we have a corridor that runs east-west in Toronto, right, which also runs alongside the east-west line of our train system, which goes like far east, far west. It's, it's almost like an hour and a half distance between the two stations. And they have a bike lane that literally goes through the that entire corridor that is dedicated. They gave up street real estate for a bike lane. And with the pandemic, they also narrowed the streets to accommodate restaurants so that they could have patio space because indoor dining was limited in capacity. So just the way that they've been very responsive and out front with addressing this mobility infrastructure piece in a, in a way that's meaningful, because when we look at bike lanes as they run through Atlanta right now, you go down a street and then the bike lane ah, stops right, and yeah. I'm not sure where it right. up. it's really treacherous. So that was impressive. They have a ride share, a bike ride share offering that's $99 for the year. So for $99, you can get on one of their bikes and ride it anywhere you want in the city. That's incredibly affordable. They actually work. They're everywhere, not just in certain parts, but they're like everywhere across the city. And they're making their own moves to tear down some highway systems that have been a huge blight and unsightly in the community so that they can give more frontage view to their to their waterfront. And they have their own version of a Beltline. I just continue to be impressed and, and, and amazed and even have added from a transit standpoint, more rapid trains that go farther to more places. Yeah, all of those things. So the, that was that was great and impressive to experience my city in that kind of new way and to see that they're still continuing to sort of pioneer in this space. Just from in in your opinion on this, because so many of the things that you talked about are, you know, hard choices or hard out- outcomes when you're talking about economic opportunities and access to health care and food deserts and all of those things. How does any of this drive or limit human connection? Yeah, that's probably one of the one of the worst byproducts of being in cars is that we're not connected to each other. Right. We're sitting in isolation in our car, stuck in traffic, not making any connection. And that's one of the things I love about going to a place like New York City is getting on that train. And without fail, there's always a conversation that I have with someone. There's always some human connection. And I've the thing about being in crowded spaces that we just don't seem to understand is a benefit in Atlanta is that we are forced to deal with people. Right. We're forced to deal with people. And when you're forced to deal with people, you got to figure out how to work some things out. And it's going to have to be through some kind of civility because we can't be upset all the time, right? We've got to figure some things out. Yeah, listen, and you mentioned even as a, 
as a, a high schooler in, in Toronto or what have you, when you have that ability or what have you, you can meet people, you can form friendships or what have you. You're not so dependent on the city and people are open and, and available to you. So listen, this is an area where I, I think it's, you know, when you start talking about it, it makes a lot of sense, but it's not top of mind it, for a lot of people. For some people, it really is. But you know, transportation is such a key driver to our health, our economic opportunities, and just, just you know, our outcomes. Our life. happiness. Our happiness. I happiness. You know, I'll make this one point. There's a professor at Yale that does a course called The Science of Well-Being. And she uses data from psychology experiments and studies and that sort of thing to demystify our notions about what makes us happy, right? We think, you know, the high paying job, the credentials, being attractive and that sort of thing. And at the end of the day, it really comes down to basic things like getting adequate rest. But one of those keys to happiness is talking to a stranger. Wow. Talking to a stranger statistically through studies has a measurable impact on one's happiness and things like transit facilitates that kind of exchange more often for people than sitting alone in a car or even sitting in an Uber. You know, you just, you don't get that. So the the implications are, are far reaching than we ever thought they were. Awesome. Awesome. So as we, as we wrap up, one of the questions that we ask everyone at the parley in all blue, and thank you again for, for joining us. What does it mean to live well? I love this question. For me, living well is a combination of blessings and adversity. The adversity is important because it helps us to develop bigger muscles and the blessings give us the gratitude of um, understanding that we can get through some of that adversity and that we can appreciate it much more. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. And listen, so I know you have a background in theater and you are someone who clearly, I mean, I didn't know that you, you were got into this work through through dance or dance instruction and developing those things. The arts are clearly important to you. And before we we came on, you were talking about a piece of art that you just acquired. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I made a goal. One of the few goals I made for 22 was to acquire a piece of original art. Yeah. And I wasn't quite sure where to start, but I know that I've always loved photography. And as I was reflecting on this resolution, I, it reminded me of a photographer I had met in uh, the early 90s when I was in high school. My first trip to Georgia was part of a Canadian delegation that went to Savannah State University for the Pan-African Congress Conference. And when I was there, I met a gentleman named Roland Freeman, who is a photographer whose catalog really documents Black life in the rural South and also the quilting traditions of um, Black folks in these communities. So I thought, oh my goodness, it would be so great if I could get one of his pieces because I when I eventually moved to Atlanta, ran into him on a couple occasions at the National Black Arts Festival. So I do a quick Google search, discover, yes, he's still living. Not only is he still living, he's still exhibiting. And there on Google was a phone number that I took a chance and called. And lo and behold, got him on the phone. Wow. Told him how he met. 
And to my delight and amazement, he remembered me. He oh, remembered wow. me. Uh-huh. And, uh, so not only was I able to acquire one of his original works, but he reminded me in our conversation that he had photographed me and my sister. And he looked back in his archives and found that photograph and sent it along with a piece of work that I acquired of his that documents these um, beautiful African-American elder men in Mississippi in 1975, sitting on a porch. It's a Mm. beautiful black and white image, but um, he also sent along a black and white image of myself with my sister. I'm 16 years old in the picture. And um, it was, it was just a a delightful occurrence. And um, I will just remember this forever. Man, that that is such an awesome story and awesome outcome. And listen, hey, it's so much in that one story. The arts are so important and and really supporting local artists and individual artists or what have you and how much it means. Wow, that is just a, a, a great story. What's his name again? His name is Roland L. Freeman. Awesome. Awesome. Well, well, Heather. We have really, really enjoyed you on the Parlay in All Blue. Everyone else, just uh, hang on and, you know, listen to the outro and the announcements. And we will be back again with you next week. Take care and bye. We appreciate you here at the Parlay in All Blue. Please tell someone about us. Share the podcast. Make sure you leave a comment. You can find the Parlay in All Blue at Spotify, Apple, Google, Amazon, or Stitcher. Wherever you receive your podcast, you can find us there. Make sure that you add us as a favorite, follow us, or subscribe. Whatever it is you need to do to make sure that you're plugged in. We want to say a big thanks to DJ Marky G for allowing us to use his music exclusively on our podcast. We appreciate it, bro. Much love. Thank you again. I'm out.